Welcome to episode eight of the Nordic Art Agency podcast, a podcast connecting emerging and established international artists and art influencers from around the globe. I'm your host, Juliet, a British expat, art historian and gallerist based in Sweden. Every fortnight, I'm in conversation with an artist or art influencer whose artwork or insight inspires me personally. The Nordic Art Agency currently has 14 international artists who are exclusively represented in Scandinavia, and this will be an opportunity to explore their creative process and vision in more depth. This week, we are in conversation with one of Britain's leading contemporary sculptors, Simon Gudgeon. Simon is possibly best known for the striking three-metre-tall bronze sculpture, Serenity, which stands on the shores of the Serpentine Lake in London's Hyde Park. Installed in 2009, inspired by the Egyptian goddess of nature, Isis, and based on the wading bird, the Ibis, this uplifting sculpture is visible for 500 metres and encapsulates much of the tone and style of Simon's work as a sculptor. Simon's monumental sculpture is featured in international private collections, and in 2011, Search for Enlightenment was presented to His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh on his 90th birthday. Large-scale works have been permanently installed at the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew in London and the National Museum of Wildlife Art in Wyoming in the USA. Over the last decade, Simon and his wife Monique have been cultivating their countryside sculpture park, which is set in over 100,000 square metres in Dorset. Sculpture by the Lake features work by Simon and other sculptors and is a stunning feast of nature, wildlife and art. Simon and I met in 2008 And as I began to research him as an artist, I learned that not only has Simon originally started out in quite a different career, he was also completely self-taught and only embarked on sculpting in 1998. So there is certainly a great deal to explore, and I am delighted to welcome Simon Gudgeon to the Nordic Art Agency podcast. Good morning, Juliet, and welcome to you as well. Simon, you're joining me from your home and studio in Dorset, which is southwest England, and under normal circumstances around this time of year, I imagine that sculpture by the lake would be in full swing and teeming with people. Typically, you'd be incredibly busy with all the various gardens, gallery and cafe and seeing a steady flow of visitors. How does it feel to be under lockdown as the park is currently now closed? It's it's quite a peculiar feeling. As you said, this, this time of year is one of our busiest. The park is looking stunning as spring emerges. And for us to actually experience it like this without any people is something that hasn't happened for years. I mean, for for a number of years, we went and did Chelsea Flower Show. And I was just reminded about that on uh, a post that came back up on Facebook today that five years ago, we were loading lorries to go up to London. And then we used to go away for the whole of May um, to build a garden up there. But, you know, this year to have it here, to be here, to be able to have the time to walk around the park, have no people here. The time pressure is almost gone. It's There's no time imperative. There's nothing you have to do by a certain time, which I think is true for a lot of people at this time. And it's, it's quite remarkable. You feel much more relaxed. Take your time to actually create something and spend time doing it without other things getting in the way. You can look in your diary and apart from the odd Zoom meeting, it's it's blank for weeks and weeks ahead. It's fantastic. Birds are there. The they're all nesting. There's goslings, ducklings. It's just it's beautiful. It's been very. It's surreal. I think that's the only way of really describing it. It's a surreal experience, um, and probably one will never have. We'll never have this sort of time again where there's nothing that we have to do. No, I agree with you. I, I feel this time is some is a moment which I think I'll always 
remember significantly and and in a way reconnecting uh with you during this period i've had more time to reflect upon the kind of guests i'd like to invite on the podcast and normally life just continues at such a rapid pace you you don't really look back and reflect and i've definitely been doing a great deal of of that myself thinking about artists who i've really enjoyed working with or have admired their work so i feel it's benefited in a way which i could never have anticipated and we originally met actually in 2008 when you were represented by a prominent gallery in London and Sculpture by the Lakes had just launched. And I really recall travelling from London to Pallington Lakes, which is where the Sculpture Park is based. And I walked around with clients and explored the gardens and viewed the sculpture, which was on display then. And I imagine it's many more works now. And it was an incredibly warm Sunday. And the gardens and sculpture in the sunshine were just the most perfect synergy. And the powerful reaction from my clients to your work was so memorable to me. For you, Simon, nature and art seems to be entirely synonymous, and the outdoor sculpture is such a natural fit for your artistry. You originally grew up in a a farm in Yorkshire in the countryside. How much has that impacted your practice as an artist, as an owner of a sculpture park, continuously being surrounded by wildlife? I think think when I started out as an artist, um, you've, you've got to paint or sculpt what you know and I knew nature I'd, I'd grown up on a farm in Yorkshire as you said I'd, I'd been very close to nature all my life in those days we didn't spend all our days looking at computer screens or out there messing around in the hedgerows and just observing and I think that has been the great influence so when I started painting I painted what I knew and so I started going down the wildlife trail and gradually I moved away from that as as pure, purely depicting a piece of wildlife a, a bird or an animal is is not that difficult to try and interpret it and give the impression of that creature um, whilst maintaining its characteristics but leaving something for the viewer to actually interpret and put in there as well that's where the real challenge started and that's what I love doing now. And was was it always a, a direction that you thought you would move into to become a professional artist and sculptor because I know that you actually had a career in law in the 80s and you decided to leave that career and you enjoyed a variety of other experiences but eventually you settled as a painter and artist. Did you always know that you were destined to create or was there just the the explicit need to be out in open wide spaces observing nature and translating that? Was that ever present? I think think I've always been creative. My life has been a series of very happy accidents. I left law the day I qualified, so it wasn't really a career. I did the full six years, but towards the end of that, the last two years, I was doing my articles, working in a solicitor's firm. And at that stage, I thought I still didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I knew I just didn't want to be a solicitor. And so I left and then did a variety of other things. And I became an artist because my mother bought me some paints in my 30s. And um, so I started painting. I'd painted a little bit at school, but not much. And actually, the materials you were given to, at school, six poster colours and some horrible crinkly paper and hog's hair brushes. And so it wasn't really... I was I was amazed when I started painting in my 30s at actually the materials that were available. It was at that stage after I'd been painting, it was literally a few months, I thought, actually, this is what I want to do. This is the first thing in my life that I found that I really, really want to do. So I set about becoming an artist. And was that was that feeling the trans? Well, for me, obviously, I've studied history of art. I did A level art, and I'm, I've always been painting and drawing. But 
and I've always had access to decent material, Simon, but I never had quite the result. The book which I I remember being handed when I began to work with your wildlife sculpture was your your Passion for Grouse book. And just looking at the incredible illustrations in the book and knowing that you had this ability to transfer nature onto paper with such accuracy, but also such sort of, there was a spirit to it, which I thought was wonderful. I, I never encountered that, despite the fact that I had good training at school and I studied art in Venice and I'm always in awe. You make it sound so natural. And then again, your move to sculpture also seemed like a very natural transition. And it happened a few years after you actually began exhibiting your painting. Throughout your career as a sculptor, you've always worked predominantly in materials such as bronze and marble and granite. And these very smooth, simple lines and and earthy patinas are very much your trademark. This is whether you're creating wildlife or abstract sculpture, it's present really in every piece that I see of your work. It's very elegant and honest. Was this your initial instinctive approach when you began to sculpt? Or was this just something you felt represented what you were trying to portray most closely to nature? I think it came actually through sculpting itself in that sculpture is three-dimensional, but actually there's a fourth dimension, and that's touch. People, whenever they see a sculpture, they want to touch it. And trying to reproduce the feathers on a bird accurately on a piece of sculpture, it would give it a rough finish, whereas if you stroke a bird, it's smooth and silky. And it was actually trying to develop that side, the touch side, more than anything else that led me down the smooth and simplified lines. And actually also, I don't think I could have had the patience or be bothered to really sort of put all that detail into it. I get quite lazy when I'm sculpting. Actually, I do when I'm painting as well. That's why I like to abstract it more and more because actually once once you've mastered the challenge of doing sculpting every feather, after that it becomes tedious. And so I do like to actually simplify the form so it does become very tactile. And the relationship between the physical presence of sculpture so the scale and the location and the impact of the environment over time or on the various materials that you use, they all seem to be aspects which you embrace fully, especially in your public art. And this connection between the, the man-made modus of your work, your, your hand and your decision making, and its relationship with nature feels ever present. How important is, is the placement of sculpture outdoor to your artistic process? I think it's, it's hugely important when we again we first started developing sculpture by the lakes which again was a happy accident because we bought this property as a fishery and had no intention of built, putting sculpture here once we arrived here i had a big sculpture in storage and i thought oh, i might as well put that around in the park and then i built another one and put that around as well and then after a few months we looked at each other and thought why don't we make a sculpture park and that's very much how it happened once i'd started placing sculpture outdoors the location became more and more important. And some of the sculptures have moved three or four times. And every time they move the sculpture, the characteristics of the sculpture change as well. To have a successful um, placement of an outdoor sculpture, the sculpture has got to merge with the landscape and the landscape merges with the sculpture. So they actually they enhance each other. It's more than just plonking a sculpture somewhere and leaving it. And that is where I think we're incredibly fortunate here in that most of the sculptures here are permanent or semi-permanent so we can actually landscape the grounds to suit that sculpture or we can i can make a sculpture to actually suit the location you know most other sculpture parks they're on a rotating exhibition so they can just 
they essentially can put a sculpture in the middle of a lawn or somewhere like that. But actually, there's no correlation between the sculpture and its environment. And I think it is important to actually have that link. Actually, that was something I was going to ask you. Was it was the sculpture what inspired the various landscaping and gardens that you've created or or was it vice versa? But obviously you have the ability, as you say, you can place a sculpture and then watch how the landscape interacts with the work. Yes. And then you can move it and, and, and have a completely different experience. That's that's really I never thought about it in that way, that it's it's a sort of mobile aspect of the entire body that makes up the park. It is, and actually the, the other important aspect of having a sculpture park is that it's allowed me to change as an artist hugely in that I will create a sculpture for a specific location. Now, before, when I, when we first moved here, I was doing wildlife and abstract birds like Serenity. Once I arrived here and I thought, actually, I want a figurative sculpture there or I'd like a kinetic sculpture there or a pure abstract sculpture, I started actually broadening the sphere or the, the genre of what I do and as such my my genre is probably quite difficult to define because it it does span so such a wide range of subject matter and and almost style there is always that smooth element to it but I I do like to have a very broad I like to have a challenge I like to actually look think how would I make that sculpture very different say from what I've done before and that's what really fires me up is the challenge and some of those larger works are absolutely breathtaking. And I mean, monumental sculpture is the ultimate deliverable in terms of creating an impactful addition to a landscape or building. Your larger pieces are cast using the lost wax process. How complex is this when working on such a large scale? Very. And actually, it's the skill of the foundry. Um, it's, it's, again, something I learned very early on when I was um, started sculpting was actually any any sculptor is only as good as the foundry he works with. And the first foundry I worked with weren't very good at all. And I almost gave up, actually, because the results were so disappointing. And now I'm working with a fantastic foundry. And they they take care of that whole aspect of it. And I will go and oversee the various stages. But um, they just do such a good job. Yes, going back to the lost wax process, because of the way it works and you're casting smaller elements and then joining them all together, Probably each piece is only going to be 30, 40 centimetres square. So if you took a complex piece like Serenity, it's made up, it's almost like putting a jigsaw puzzle together when they've cast all the various pieces and then they start welding them together, then merging them and smoothing them down. And so it is, um, it's, it's a very long and complex process, which is why it can take sometimes the bigger pieces five months to make them. I think this phenomenal, actually, the details you just described it because they are serenity is three meters tall, and I think some of your other works embrace is two hundred and seventy centimeters in diameter. Those yeah. two separate elements; uh, these are large scale pieces. Yeah, it must be a phenomenal experience to watch how it all comes together as well. It's it's seeing the finished thing, and that this goes back again to having a sculpture park. Before I had a sculpture park, if I made a, a large sculpture like. One of my first big abstract bird pieces was Tehuti. Um, when I made that, it, I saw it at the foundry. I exhibited it and saw it then, and then it went into storage. So, And that's what happens with most monumental pieces. The artist hardly ever sees them because you, you <laughs> unless you've got your own sculpture park, you can't. The joy here is that I, I can go out and see 
the big sculptures all the time. I can look at different ways I want to sort of not enhance them, but change and develop that idea and keep going with it. And so it is, it's a very fortunate position to be in that I can create work specifically for here and then continue to see it. And experience it in situ, which I think also must be wonderful for you personally to see it in nature as perhaps it was intended by you initially. And I know over the last three weeks, you've been documenting the various gardens, lakeside walks and sculptures, which you've founded at Sculpture by the Lakes in a series of brilliant, uplifting videos. I think you've recorded 10 episodes now. They can be found on YouTube. And actually, I'll put a link at the end in the show notes. And I've really enjoyed having a guided tour with your your personal viewpoints and anecdotes. I think it's given me um, an insight into the journey of the park and, and how it's evolved over time. And it's really packed with well-conceived locations. I didn't realise uh, how many individual areas you've you've established for contemplation, for picnics, for yoga and meditation. And I think you also have artists and residents sometimes who come and visit the artist's lake. And there's an abundance of bird and wildlife. And I think the island, for me, the gorgeous little cottage with the wood-burning fire, is just incredibly special. And actually the bamboo garden, Simon, which I've been, I've been trying to create a bamboo garden in my garden for about <laughs> five years. <laughs> and yours is incredible. Um, it must have been a massive undertaking initially when you began to plan the planting and create all the various locations and, and lookout points. Is it an evolving project or was there a clear vision from the onset? No, it's, and it, it wasn't really a massive undertaking because apart from one small area of the garden close to the house, the walkway, the wise walk, um, which we did put on paper when we first arrived, brought quite a lot of plants with us and we needed to plan that area. So we planned that part. Everything else has evolved. So, and I think that if at the beginning, we'd started off and say, okay, in 12 years' time, we want to get to where we are now. It would have been too daunting. We wouldn't have even started um, if we'd actually done a budget for how much it was going to cost and how much time and our lives it was going to take. Um, I think, yes, <laughs> we'd have just said no way. But because it's evolved and evolved slowly and, you know, most of it, well, none of it has been put down on paper apart from that first bit. We walk around and we look at an area and suddenly think, well, we could do this here. We could change it. We could plant something there. We could make this area into a little area where we could put a sculpture. And it's that evolution which I think has been almost the saviour of the park. So it, it hasn't been, there hasn't been a rigid plan. Almost we've done one part and the park has almost told us what we need to do next. It, and that evolution has been wonderful to work with. And that, that's actually the feeling I get when I watch the videos. It doesn't feel as though there's been this big investor that's put pressure on you to place or construct something which commercially is going to be this extravagant adventure throughout the park. It feels like a really organic, carefully crafted, sort of quiet in a way, the way in which it, it, it sort of unfolds. And it must be thrilling to watch back on the videos, which are essentially a documentary series or a sort of unconscious synopsis of all the thoughts and plans and hard work that you've put in to sculpture by the lakes over the last 12 years and to be able to share this sort of informal and very personal insights online at a time when I mean many of us are confined to our homes or apartments it must give you Simon a tremendous sense of pride do, do you have a favorite location in the park that you yourself find that you return to time and again Yes, um, like you, one of my favourites is the island where we, we tend to go there once the park is closed around about six o'clock with a bottle of wine and watch the sun go down. And that is, that's a very special place. But there's also 
a couple of places around the park where the trees are very powerful. There's a, there's a, an energy from them, and often I will go and just sit under one or two of those trees and with my back against them and just think up ideas. And I, those little places which aren't obvious, I find very powerful. Well, I really hope one day I can, after all this chaos is over, I can visit because I would absolutely love to walk around and uh, view all the sculptures. It looks just sublime. And it's been delightful to hear your artist journey in your own words, Simon. And I'm also thrilled that we should be working together in the very near future as three of your sculptures will be featured in the Nordic Art Agency's Art Pop-Up, which is opening very shortly, in fact, in two weeks' time, launching on May the 20th, in collaboration with Hansa in Malmo and Gallery Lomi. And together we have selected three works in bronze, Search for Enlightenment, Luna and The Stunning Bird of Happiness. Could you share the inspiration behind each of these sculptures? Yes, um, Luna developed really out of, um, from Serenity. It was an idea that Serenity was very much um, an introspective piece, a very contemplative piece. And I wanted to just take that form and develop it further and actually make it much more open, much more not welcoming, but actually shouting out to the world, I'm here. And so it's, it's up looking, uplifting. It just keeps those lovely smooth lines and the elements as well. So that, that was the feeling behind that. It was, it was a piece that I'd had in my mind ever since I created Serenity. And actually, even before that, um, Serenity actually came out of a, a sculpture idea, which I did called preening, which is more towards wildlife. And it's just, it's a, a theme I li- like to keep developing. It's actually trying to get the emotion into a semi-abstract sculpture, which I think is very important. Bird of Happiness, um, that's one of my crane sculptures. But the crane in Chinese culture is known as the Bird of Happiness. But it's also based very loosely on the um, Strelitza, which is a South African plant flower, also called the crane flower. And it's just that lovely shape and the abstraction of it, which I love. And again, that piece is uplifting. It's looking upwards. It's shouting out to the heavens, I'm here. And that's, I, I, I do like that side of it. Search for Enlightenment, um, that was one of the most common questions I'm asked is, how long does a sculpture take? Most of them take weeks, months, years, not to actually create them, but to actually formulate the idea, to clarify the idea. And again, Serenity was a fine example of that. From preening to Serenity was about six years up in my brain, ticking away slowly. And so when the possibility of having a sculpture in Hyde Park came along, I was shown the site and said, if you could make a, put a sculpture there, what would you put there? Serenity at that stage was just clearing my mind of what I wanted to do. So that was the one I made. Other sculptures, very few, very rare, come immediately. And Search for Enlightenment was one of those. We were in um, Africa, in the Karoo Desert in South Africa, and um, a place I've been many, many times. It's a, a friend's farm out there, and it's right in the, the mountains. And always on the last night, we go and sit on the, a mountain called Clipfontaine and uh, watch the sun go down, drink a bit of wine, and then you can lie on your back, look up to the stars, and you can actually see satellites passing overhead and the odd shooting star. And we were there with friends, and we, they were all looking up at the sky, and suddenly the idea for Search for Enlightenment, it just came just like that. 
And as soon as I got back home, I was into the studio and I created the piece in a matter of days, the first, the maquette size. And the, 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 the inspiration, I mean, the, this is the piece, this is what I wrote when I created it. I stood on a 240 million year old mountain in Africa and watched the 4.6 billion year old sun descend below the horizon. As the light diminished, the 200 billion stars in our Milky Way began to glow in the night sky. Our galaxy extends for 100,000 light years and is part of a universe consisting of hundreds of billions of galaxies. It was at that moment I began to grasp the narrowness of consciousness, not something which in this particular time is quite salient. And I'm very excited to be able to show that work in Scandinavia for the first time, continuing our relationship a decade later, uh, and as representing you as a new artist. I don't think you actually know, Simon, that my, my family are originally from South Africa and Zimbabwe. So that story of the open skies at night, I think that's something very unique. And I remember uh, experiencing it on my Omar's farm in, in the White River near the Kruger National Park. And there is that you know, very big, uh, wide African sky. So now I have that. I will carry that story with me when I talk about and describe your work and that sculpture in particular. I feel very privileged to be in this unique position to approach international, established, highly successful artists such as yourself and to introduce their work to the Nordics. So thank you, Simon, for being our guest today on the podcast and for joining the stable of international artists that we represent here at the agency. Juliet, it's a pleasure and I shall look forward to working with you over the years. I'll be including a link to Simon Gudgeon's artist's profile page in the show notes, as well as a link to his website and to Sculpture by the Lakes website. You will also find a link to Simon's YouTube channel, where you can view the stunning series of recent videos touring the Sculpture Park. And if you'd like to follow Simon on his Instagram, I will also include a link there too. Details of the Hansa Art pop-up are available on our events page, where the three sculptures mentioned by Simon will be exhibited. And I will also add a link to this in the show notes. Until next time, stay safe. Bye-bye.